Amen. I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 28, verse 1. Uh, we'll use that as the text. I want to talk to you this evening about boldness. Proverbs 28, 1, it says, The wicked flee when no man pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Now, uh, why does the Holy Ghost inspire the writer of this uh, scripture, this text? Why does he inspire him to use the lion as an example? We all know that the lion is considered to be the king of the jungle and, and that type of thing. But why would he talk about Christians in relation to or in a similar fashion as a lion, the way a lion operates? Why is a lion is considered to be a, uh, an, an example or an illustration of being bold? Because the lion's at the top of the food chain. The implication and the reference here is that the righteous have an unfair advantage over the world. It's not just business as usual as far as the spirit of this world is concerned. The wicked flee when no man pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Now notice it says, who is bold as a lion is the righteous. That's something we're made. It's not something we grow into. It's something that we're made. I'm going to turn to uh, Hebrews chapter 10. The writer of the book of Hebrews is talking about the remission of sin in verse 18. Now where remission of sin, now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Verse 19, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he has consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. Now notice in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, Paul, who I believe was the author of the uh, letter to the Hebrews. But the scripture says in Hebrews 4.16, Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, if you will, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. The, uh, the Old Testament word for boldness and the New Testament word for boldness are very similar. The New Testament expands a little bit on the meaning that, uh, from the Hebrew Old Testament language. But basically it means confidence. But then it has another secondary meaning. And to be bold is to be outspoken. Now that doesn't necessarily mean loud. But to be outspoken, which uh, Strong's Concordance identifies and, and uh, describes as clarity or frankness of speech. In other words, somebody that's bold doesn't hold back. They don't hold back at all. And the Bible tells us that we have boldness in him. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 12, I believe it is, says that we have boldness in him because of what Jesus has done for us, because of the sacrifice that has been made. Now, if we just stop there and talk about that aspect of it or that side of it, we could talk about how the righteous, according to the Bible, are already bold. But there's a lot of things that Christians miss out on because they won't step up in boldness. A lot of people fail to help other people, not only just fail to receive for themselves, but fail to, to operate according to God's will and plan and purpose to help other people, to be a blessing to others. And how is that? If the righteous, if boldness is just an automatic thing to those of us that have been made righteous or made Jesus the Lord of our lives, in other words, entered into the new birth and made, been made a part of God's family, if that was an automatic thing, then Paul certainly didn't seem to understand that. Look at Ephesians chapter 6. 
We won't read through the whole scriptures, but you know, in verse 10, he starts off talking about being strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Verse 18, he gets around to after he describes the, uh, the armor that is given to us as children of God. Verse 18, he says, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplications for all saints. So the first thing he wants them to pray is according to, to the inspiration or the, the prompting of the Holy Ghost, praying always with all kinds of prayer and so forth. But notice verse 19, he says, and for me, pray for me. Paul asked the church to pray for him. And for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. A couple of things I want you to notice here is Paul's already in prison when he writes this letter. Uh, probably in Rome is the, the imprisonment the uh, experienced in Rome. And notice that he says that he doesn't want adversity or the tribulation of the trouble that he's in the middle of to rob them of their victory. To rob them of their boldness. And notice it says in the last, uh, last verse we read, verse 20, I guess it is. Notice it says that Paul knew how things ought to be. He says, pray for me that I may boldly speak as I ought. He knows what God wants him to do. Well, then why is he asking for prayer to do it? There's an interesting thing, a difference about uh, verse 18. I'm sorry, it's verse 19, where he says, pray for me that utterance may be given unto me that I may open my mouth boldly. And then it says in verse 20 that I may speak boldly. Now, both of those words in verse 19 and verse 20, contained the same Greek word or the root word. There's a little bit of a difference, a shade of difference in, uh, in the two words. But they both mean pretty much the same thing. It means to be clear or frank or open and to be outspoken about it. In other words, to have confidence that you know what you're talking about. But the, the word that's used in the 19th verse, let me read it to you again. I'm going to try to make this clear and keep you from being confused. But he says, and pray for me that utterance may be given unto me that I may open my mouth boldly. This word is different. It contains the same meaning as the next time he uses in the next verse, the word boldly. But he joins two words together where he says that I may speak boldly. The combination of the two words is talking about a position of boldness, not just the action but a position of boldness. And this is one thing that, that um, well, I didn't see it for a long time. But when I did see it, it made me examine myself in light of what the Bible refers to concerning boldness. He's talking about a position of boldness, a position with God that makes you to have confidence in a greater measure than otherwise. Let me see if I can point it out to you. Turn with me to Acts chapter 4. Let me give you an example. We won't read the whole story, but you remember in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are going to the temple at at a certain hour of the day. They go through the beautiful gate of the temple, and there's a man begging for alms, crippled man begging for alms. 
Peter and John fastened their eyes on him, and Peter says, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. He took him by the hands and lifted him up. The Bible says the strength of the power of God went into his legs, his ankles, and he stood leaping and running and jumping and praising God and so forth. Well, that creates quite a stir there at the temple at that time of day. As a result, Peter preaches to the people, and I think it's 5,000 people get saved as a result of his preaching. Well, a crowd of 5,000 people is going to draw the attention of two groups of people. One is the Romans who don't want any civil unrest or any rioting or things like that going on. And the other is the, the Pharisees. The, uh, well, most of them were Pharisees. But it's the religious council, the same ones that put Jesus to death just a short time before. And so in chapter 4, it tells us about how that Peter and John were called on the carpet by the religious leaders and how he responded to them and so forth. He said, Peter said some uh, very interesting thing, things. I'm going to pick up the, uh, the story in, uh, well, I think I need to back up to verse 7. We may skip through it and not read the whole thing. But Acts chapter 4, verse 7, it says, And when they, the council, had set them, Peter and John, in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost. I want you to see that phrase. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost. Now, this is not talking about speaking in tongues. Some people get so one-tracked on things that any time they see the phrase filled with the Holy Ghost, they think that means speaking in tongues. Thank God for the privilege of speaking in tongues. I believe every person in the body of Christ should. But that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about that the Holy Ghost prompted him to have an answer and to deliver an answer for the crippled man that's been healed. It means the Holy Ghost inspired him or quickened unto him what he needed to say in that particular situation. In other words, this isn't something that's rehearsed. It's not something that Peter and or John tried to bring about. It's something that took place because the power of God was on display. So it says in Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, you rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole. Notice Peter said that healing was a good deed. Be it known unto you all. And to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him does this man stand here before you whole. Notice that that Peter is testifying that Jesus is alive. Even by him does this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which is set at naught of you builders. You counted his life as nothing, but it's become the head of the corner the foundation of the church that changes the shape of the world. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Verse 13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Now, the rest of the story goes on. We won't read through it. But the rest of the story tells us about how the council beat them and sent them on the way and commanded them not to preach or teach anymore in the name of Jesus. Peter identifies for the council that it's the name of Jesus and the power of that name backed up by the resurrection of Jesus himself. That's the power, the source of the power that provided healing for the crippled man. 
that everybody knew, that everybody passed by and saw day after day after day. Jesus might have even passed by this same guy. But it was when the Holy Ghost prompted Peter and John to do something. That's when things took place. And so they beat him and commanded him not to preach or teach anymore in the name of Jesus. Verse 23, it says, And being let go, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is, who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. That's a reference to both Rome and the Jewish council. The kings of the earth, talking about the Romans, stood up, and the rulers, talking about the Jewish council, religious leaders. They were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and of the people of Israel were gathered together. For to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings. And grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word. By stretching forth your hand to heal. And that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. And they spake the word of God with boldness now I want you to notice something back up to verse 24 and notice this let me read a little bit of this again and when they heard that heard the uh, the report of what the elders had said and how they threatened them and so forth when they heard that they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said now let me ask you a question what kind of prayer is taking place here it says they're all praying this is not Peter leading in prayer they're all praying. Well, how did they know to all pray the same thing? It would have been one thing if Peter showed up and said, well, here's what happened, guys. Here's what they said. And that the, during the time that we've been held before the council, John wrote out a script for the prayer that he thinks we should pray. That's not what's happening. They're all praying together. There's only one thing you can make this fit with what the Bible teaches about prayer. And that is these people, every one of these people that are gathered together, who are filled with the Holy Ghost, with the evidence of speaking in other tongues, lifted up their voice to God with one accord. They all know what they want to pray for. They all want to pray for God to continue his work moving in the city of Jerusalem, just like he did in Acts chapter 3, the previous chapter that started this whole thing with Peter and John. They're praying in tongues, and this is the Holy Ghost telling us what he heard. That's the only way it could be. Now, if it said that Peter was praying or that John was praying and gave some kind of indication that they were, in effect, leading in prayer, like what is the way so much of the church world operates in services nowadays and such, then we'd have to understand that this is a prayer that's inspired by the Holy Ghost for Peter or and or John to pray. But this is not what that is going on here. They're lifting up their voice to God with one accord. They're praying about the utterance and the impression, the leading of the Holy Ghost. And this is what the Holy Ghost refers through Luke, the author of the book of Acts, what the Holy Ghost heard them say. I want you to stop and think about it for a minute. This is very much a side note, just a little add-on to what I'm trying to get to. 
But I want you to understand something. If this is what the Holy Ghost heard them say when they prayed in other tongues, can you imagine some of the prayers we must be praying? I mean, this is no little thing here. This is no God deliver me in my little group. They're praying by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost in other tongues. And here's a, uh, an account given by the Holy Ghost himself to say, and this is what they prayed. This is what I prompted them to pray. Again, it says in verse 29, and now, Lord, behold their threatenings and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word. Now, didn't we just see in the uh, previous verses in this same chapter, didn't we just see that the Pharisees and Sadducees, the religious leaders, marveled at their boldness? They perceived that they were ignorant and unlearned men. That just means they didn't go to some school or biblical training like the, uh, the priest did. And so they took notice of them, marveled at them because of the boldness to speak the truth that brought results. Well, if they've already got boldness, why are they praying for boldness again? Did you notice it says when Peter was addressing the council, we took a, a second to, to point it out. It says, and Peter filled with the Holy Ghost said, here's the prompting of the Holy Ghost to, to, to give an answer at the spur of the moment because they've been called into question concerning the power of God. So he's already filled with the Holy Ghost. Yet here it says at the end of the chapter, as a result of Peter and John praying with the, the rest of the group, however many of them there were there, it says they spake with boldness just like they asked for, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. See, folks, the phrase filled with the Holy Ghost can't just mean speaking in tongues. That can't be all there is to it. It's talking about a Holy Ghost move or prompting or impression on the inside of believers, individual believers, to give an account for the name of Jesus in the preaching of that name. So here's the point I'm trying to make. Remember where we started over in Ephesians chapter 6. Paul's talking about a place, a position of boldness, a position of being outspoken and saying things the way that they are. That's what happened as a result of their prayer here in Acts chapter 4. The point is simply this, folks. You and I, having been made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, have an unfair advantage over the unsaved. And certainly we have an advantage over the devil operating in this world. Just like the lion is the top of the food chain in his environment, you are in yours too. Now that's, that can't be disputed. There's too much Bible evidence to prove the truth of that statement. But let's think a little bit further. If we are at the top of the food chain, why do we not always live like we're at the top of the food chain? Well, the disciples seemed to understand that boldness had something to do with that. They didn't ask God, make us something we're not. Give us more power. Give us more faith. That would be wasted prayer because that's not how faith comes and you've already got the power. They already knew they had the power. In Acts chapter 3, the beginning of the chapter, where Peter says, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. He knew what he had. He didn't need somebody to prop him up and tell him. He knew what he had. But did he have more than you have? Does he have more of God than you've got? Is he more righteous than you are? 
One of the things I like about the Gospels is they show us the humanity of the disciples, these ones that are going to be miracle workers themselves. In a lot of situations, they were complete screw-ups. I take great comfort in that. God can use screw-ups. But especially Peter. I mean, he's the one that went out to walk on the water and then started sinking. He's the one that said, not so, Lord. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. I'm sure that made Peter's day. And over and over again, it shows us the humanity of these guys. The mistakes that they've made that that you and I maybe probably would even have made bigger ones were we in his place. But these are the people that God used. And all they did was ask for boldness. All they did was ask for boldness. They didn't ask for for, um, direction. How can we meet with these leaders and come to a compromise? They prayed for more boldness to do the same works that were just done. The implication, folks, is that there is a depletion from time to time of the boldness, the position that we take or the position we understand we have relative to the new birth. Now, the Bible tells us, turn with the Hebrews. Um, where do I want to start? I think I want to go first to Hebrews Chapter, now let's start in chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Paul's talking about the remission of sin. He says, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. By the blood of Jesus. We read this one before, didn't we? We have boldness through the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus is what makes us new creatures in him or a new creation. Hebrews chapter 4 tells us to come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The Bible talks about boldness being used in different aspects for different manners. We should have boldness before heaven. We should have boldness before God because we've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus because our sin has been done away with, not just covered up, but done away with. We have the same rights and privileges to access the throne of God that Jesus had when he was here on the earth. Jesus was no more righteous when he was here on the earth than you are by the blood that he shed. That's hard for us to comprehend, but the Bible says it emphatically. The Bible says we're joint heirs with him. We couldn't be joint heirs with Jesus if we didn't have the same right standing. We couldn't be joint heirs with Jesus if he was more righteous than us. No way. So we are to be bold before heaven. Why would you need boldness to come to the throne of grace? To find mercy to help. Why would you need boldness to gain access to what God already wants you to have? Because the devil is constantly trying to tell us who we're not. Or maybe a better way to say that is who we really are and who we really are isn't righteous. From the devil's point of view. Or at least that's what he wants to convince us about. But the Bible says we're supposed to be bold before God. The Bible tells us we're supposed to be bold before men. And for goodness sakes, we're supposed to be bold before the devil. And the implication here, and I think it's even stronger than an implication. I think it's factual, but you judge that for yourself. 
But the Bible seems to indicate that that boldness is going to be necessary for us to take advantage of or take hold of or receive anything and everything that God says is ours. When I think of boldness, one of the the stories that jumps out at me is the story of the the, the, uh, three Hebrew children in the book of Daniel chapter 3. You remember the story about how Nebuchadnezzar who was the most powerful man on the planet at that time, had made a golden image, fashioned a golden image of himself. And there were several times a day when the music would play that everybody was supposed to bow down and recognize that Nebuchadnezzar was God. Well, the three Hebrew children that were taken when Israel went into captivity along with Daniel, we've read, uh, we read in previous chapters about how they committed themselves to the Lord to not break the law of Moses through their, the eating methods and manners of the people that were holding them captive. So they worked out with the, the one that was the dean of the school, so to speak, that they were in and being trained by to let them eat the things that were according to the law of Moses. He didn't want to do it because he thought they would turn out as good looking and then he'd get in trouble. They wouldn't be as healthy looking and so that would cause a problem for him. But God's help and God's favor, because they put the word of God first, put the instructions of the law of Moses first and foremost in their lives, caused them to be more healthy looking than anybody else in the group. So we know that these people have already committed themselves to the Lord. And as such, they wouldn't bow down when the music played. They wouldn't bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's statue. They wouldn't give any credence to it whatsoever. And that's made known to the king and he brings them before him and calls them on the carpet, so to speak. Now, the thing that I want you to see about this story or remind you about this story is that Nebuchadnezzar finally comes to the place where he says, if you will bow down to my statue, the next time the music plays, the next time it's time for prayer, if you'll do that, we'll forget that you didn't do it before. We'll just start over with a clean slate And move forward from there. But if you don't, Nebuchadnezzar says, I'm going to throw you in the burning fiery furnace. And who's going to deliver you then? Verse 16 of Daniel chapter 3 says, here's their answer. Tells us about their answer. He says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said unto the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. We are not careful to answer thee in this matter. Now, you would expect these guys, young guys, to be intimidated before Nebuchadnezzar because of the power he holds, the position he has. He's basically the ruler of the known world of his day. They are the great superpower. And so you'd expect them to be intimidated to some degree. But they're not. And they flat out tell Nebuchadnezzar, we're not going to have to huddle up and make a decision about this. We've already decided. I'm sure there's been some communication before this event takes place, after the decree goes out to all the people that this is what's going to happen, meaning the bowing down before the statue, whenever the music plays at the time of prayer each day. I'm sure they're talking to one another and without dispute, without any disagreement on anybody's part, they say something like, you know we can't do this, don't you guys? Well, of course we know we can't do that. 
God's the true God. He's the one we'll worship and not some man, not some idol, not some statue. And I have no doubt that the question comes into to play. Well, what are we going to do if we get called before the king? What if the king catches us or hears about us and brings us before him? And the conversation must have gone something like, well, what if he does? We're still not bowing down to the statue. We're going to serve God. We're going to obey God. And one of the commandments is there's only one true God. And we're not going to put some man in that place. So when the time comes for them to live up to what they've already decided previously to do, they answer in unison, we don't have to think about this. We've already decided. Then they deliver the options for Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, who is the most powerful king on the face of the earth at that time, gives them their options. Now they turn it around and give him theirs. They said, verse 17, if it be so, in other words, if you do throw us into the the burning fiery furnace, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from that burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. I wonder what it would have been like for the average Christian today that we know of. I'm guessing there'd be a lot of backpedaling. I'm guessing there would be a lot of attempted discussion to come to some compromise. I'm sure that many people would have wanted to explain to Nebuchadnezzar why we can't do this. We'd really like to so that we could get along. But we just can't. Isn't there some special dispensation or special arrangements we can make? But they just flat out tell the guy, you have the power to throw us into the fiery furnace, but you just ask us. If we were thrown into the fiery furnace, who's going to deliver us out of your hand? Well, we've got an answer. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from that burning fiery furnace. So when they say, if it be so, they mean, if you do throw us in, God will deliver us. But if not, verse 18 goes on to say, but if not, that has nothing to do with if God doesn't deliver us. It means if you choose to not throw us into the burning fiery furnace. If you do throw us in, God will deliver us. But if not, if you don't throw us in, be it known unto you, O king, that we will not serve your gods nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Now, it's real easy to tell what's going on in this story. And I I guess I should... um, offer up a disclaimer here because in Sunday school, the Southern Baptist church that I grew up in, in Sunday school, I was taught numerous times that the if had to do with whether or not God delivered them, not whether or not the king threw them in the furnace. I was taught that they said, well, God's able to deliver us from the, in the fiery furnace. He's got the power to do that, but we don't know if he will or not. If he does, Deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. We're not going to worship your image. But if he doesn't, we're still not going to worship your image. Well, if the reference is to whether or not God delivers them, if God doesn't deliver them, is the issue ever bowing down to the statue? I mean, their death in the burning fiery furnace pretty much takes care of what will happen next. Right? So that can be what it means. So if so, if it be so, if you throw us in, God will deliver us. That sounds pretty positive. It sounds pretty straightforward. But if you don't, king, we're not going to worship your image. We're not here to make a deal. 
We're going to do it just the way that the, that the law of Moses told us to do it. So what's Nebuchadnezzar's response? If it's a simple God may or God may not deliver us, then the king's probably going to say, well, let's see. Jump right on in there. And we'll see what happens. But that's not the response. Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury. And the form of his visage was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Therefore he spake and commanded that they should heat the furnace seven times more than it was wont to be heated. Now why is he doing this? Why is he so mad? Why is he so upset? Because three Hebrew children or captives that were taken as children, we don't know exactly how old they are, probably mid to late teens, but we don't know uh, definitively. But this king, this most powerful king, has just been challenged by these three kids. If you throw us in, God will take care of us. He'll deliver us. If you don't throw us in, we're not worshiping your image. Well, people in positions of power like that, particularly in those days and in those settings, that didn't go over very well. So now he's got something to prove. So he heats that furnace seven times hotter than it had ever been heated. The Bible says that they were bound with ropes and tied up and cast into the burning fiery furnace. And it says that the furnace was so hot that the strongest men of Nebuchadnezzar's army that had been commissioned to put them in were killed by the fire just opening the door. But God does exactly what they said he'd do. Nebuchadnezzar looks over into the edge of this burning fiery furnace. He sees four people walking around, not bound up, not tied up with ropes like the three guys were when they were thrown in. But they're walking around in the middle of the burning fiery furnace and Nebuchadnezzar says that the, the, the appearance of the fourth one is like the Son of God. So what happened? Exactly what they were bold enough to say would happen. Now, I've got to ask you a question. And I, I don't, I've got an answer that satisfies me, but I don't know that it will work for everybody. And that is this. What would have happened if they had not been as bold about it as they were? Did boldness have anything to do with the results that they got? They put themselves out on the line here, folks. They said, throw us in. God will take care of us. He'll deliver us. It's not a we hope he will. It's not a let's pray real hard. They just come right out with it and say, God said he'd deliver us from the hands of our enemies. You throw us in, he'll deliver us. They wind up proving to Nebuchadnezzar that God is the one true God, and he changed the policy of his statue worship because of them in this situation. He issues an edict or a command that everybody should worship Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's God. Now, I'm not saying that that had some great effect on the nation or anything else because if you have to tell somebody who they're going to worship, it's certainly not from their heart. But it sure made an impact on the king. Now what were these guys doing? Were they being obnoxious? Were they being loud? Could we say from the story that they were loud mouths? No. Because boldness isn't just about being loud. It's about being convinced. 
These three guys were convinced. And because they were convinced, they didn't have to come up with some big plan. They're not trying to control things. They're not trying to tell, the, tell King Nebuchadnezzar, in the name of Jesus, you're not going to throw us in. But they issued, they issued a demand, made a demand, placed a demand on the power of God that even in the Old Testament, God said that he would deliver his people. That's the kind of boldness that Peter is praying for in Acts chapter 4. That's the kind of boldness that Paul is asking the church to pray for him to have. Turn with me to uh, Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. Let me start reading in verse 20. Paul says, according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. Paul has come to the place, at least by the time that he talks to Philippians, and I'm not saying it was some new change or new, something that... that uh, was different than before. This may have been Paul's um, understanding and commitment from the beginning. I don't know. But he's come to the place where live or die, it doesn't matter as long as Jesus is glorified. Now that's easy to take that position when you're not under threat. But by the time he writes this letter, he's been in prison several times. By the time he writes this letter, he's been through the whole shipwreck thing on the way to Rome. He writes this from a Roman prison. So after experiencing all this stuff, and he gives us a, a pretty big list over in Second Corinthians chapter 12 about all the things he's experienced, the beatings and the tortures, the prisons, the, the shipwrecks, the perils in the wilderness, perils among robbers and thieves and so forth. Those are all things that wouldn't stop him, couldn't stop him. But now... He's, uh, he's exhibiting the attitude that he has about his own life. According to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing shall I shall be ashamed. You know, the Bible says in several different places, both Old Testament and New Testament, they that call upon the Lord or they that put their trust in the Lord shall not be ashamed. Shall not be ashamed. Now, let's talk a little bit about that little further about that the bible says that jesus hated the shame of the cross he withdrew from the cross because he hated the shame but then it tells us that for the joy set before him he endured the suffering of the cross he became obedient even unto death so there was a part of the sacrifice jesus had to make that was shame he was shamed before the people to hang on the cross as a robber or a thief or an evildoer, naked. There was shame involved in that. So shame doesn't, not being ashamed doesn't mean you'll never have a circumstance that's un, uh, unpleasant. You'll never have a circumstance that you despise. It means the outcome, when you put your trust in God and in his word, the outcome 
And the victory that the word brings is greater than the shame you experience during the tribulation or the test. Paul says, I don't want to be ashamed whether I live or whether I die. Sounds like he's ready to go. Verse 21, he goes on. A familiar scripture that all of us know. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Notice he's talking about walking in boldness. Look with me to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19 tells us of the time that uh, Paul was in Ephesus. He comes to Ephesus in verse 1 and found certain disciples. And he asked them, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? And they said unto him, we've never heard of the Holy Ghost. Under what then are you baptized, he asked. And they said, unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, John, verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied. And all the men were about twelve. And he went into the synagogue and spake boldly, for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. Back up with me to chapter 18. Here's Paul in Corinth, verse 1. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth and found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because that Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, and he came in unto them. And it tells about how he stayed with them because they were tent makers and so forth. And it says, uh, verse 5, it says, And when Silas and Timothy were come from Macedonia, Paul was pressed in the spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. What I want you to see about this is that something triggered Paul's change in his ministry in this city. Ephesus wound up being the place that he had the longest stay of any place that we know of that he traveled to. He had the greatest revival, the greatest results in Ephesus of anything that we have record of. Ephesus was a crossroads city to the world. So there's no telling how many people, how many thousands of people came through and witnessed or heard Paul's teachings and heard about some of the other things that happened. It was in Ephesus, you remember, where the seven sons of Siva tried to cast the devil out of somebody. And they said, we adjure you by, Paul, by Jesus, whom Paul preaches, to come out of it. The evil spirit says, I know Paul and I know Jesus, but who are you? And the evil spirit that was in that man leapt on those seven brothers, ripped their clothes off and sent them running down the street. Well, these things weren't done in the, in the back corner or a back room, a darkened room, something. These things were done right out in the open. Paul had some of the greatest miracles of his ministry in Ephesus. It tells us in chapter 19 of, uh, of Acts Verse 11, that God wrought special miracles through his hands so that from his body were taken his handkerchiefs or aprons to the sick. And when they were laid on the sick, they were healed and the evil spirits went out of them if that was the case too. He had tremendous results in Ephesus. But something triggered him to go from reasoning in the synagogue on the Sabbath day to proclaiming and testifying that Jesus is the Christ. What was that? Well, what the Bible connects to it is when Silas and Timothy came down. 
There's something interesting about boldness, folks, and that is two people standing together can encourage each other in boldness to do the work of God that goes way beyond just doing something on your own. The Bible says two are better than one. The Bible also tells us that Jesus, with the disciples and with the 70, when he sent them out, he sent them out two by two. Why did he do that? Wasn't a shortage of places to go, so they had to double up. Why did he do that? Because that's one of the things that the Bible indicates to us, that there is additional or multiplied power when we join together with one another, where two people join together at least. The Bible says one will put a thousand in flight, two will put ten thousand. Why is the multiplier there? I think it has to do with leaning on each other so you can be bold. It was only when Silas and Timothy, his traveling companions, who he had left at Corinth, or I'm sorry, who he had left in, in Athens. He's just come from the Mars Hill ministry in Athens. He leaves them behind to catch up with him later. And when they come, that's when the Holy Ghost prompts Paul. When it says he was pressed in the spirit, I don't believe that just means he decided, well, now's the time to tell him. I think it means that there was a timing involved by the Holy Ghost so that Paul would have help with the revelation of Jesus as he's going to present to the people. And the rulers of the synagogue didn't want to hear any of it. So he winds up going next door to the school of Tyrannus and preaching there for and stays a total of about three and a half years from what we can see in the book of Acts. You remember also in Acts chapter 3, it wasn't just Peter by himself that got the crippled man at the beautiful gate healed. They went out in pairs. They went out in pairs. You know, the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 10, it says that we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, but we should work together, provoking one another to good works. Especially the, more, the, especially the further we go into the timeline, the closer we get to the end, the more important that is. Why is that? And what does it mean to provoke to good works? Well, if it means do the works of Jesus, we've already seen where both Peter and John and the company in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 4, as well as Paul's request in Ephesians chapter 6, includes a prayer for boldness. Boldness is not just something that you can claim and say I'm bold because Jesus made me righteous. You have access into the things of God. You have access into the boldness of God. But it's something that the apostles prayed for. Do we pray for that? Well, if we don't, we should be. What if boldness is the key to unlocking the greater one on the inside of you? Not only for your benefit, but to help others. What if boldness to speak the word of God is the trigger or the fuse for the Holy Ghost who is the powerhouse of God to do what he wants to do? Can you show me anything else in the Bible that indicates that it might be other than boldness? I can't find it. I can't find it at all. I'm running out of time, so let me, uh, let me close with this. I want to read to you from Psalm 34, 
Well, before I do that, I got to I got to go somewhere else first. Acts, uh, Hebrews chapter thirteen. Let me read this real quick. Verse five. It says, "Let your conversation, manner of life, be without covetousness, and be content with such things as you have." For he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Don't worry about what you don't think you have or what it appears that you don't have. Don't worry about that, he says, because God has said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. So whatever it looks like you're lacking or missing out on, God being your helper makes the difference. So that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Now he's talking about boldness before man. Now, let me go to Psalm 34. Here's a Psalm of David. He said, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make her boast in the Lord. That's boldness, isn't it? Boasting is boldness, isn't it? My soul shall make her boast in the Lord, and the humble shall hear thereof and be glad. I want you to notice what David is telling us. David says that your boldness will encourage others. Your boldness, your willingness to make your boast in the Lord. You know, I doubt if God's wondering or worried about one of us or any of us going too far. I don't think God's worried about any of us asking too big. I don't think God's concerned in the least when we stand up and say, That because the word says so, here's what God will do. He didn't have any problem watching over his word. And he does it every time. He watches over his word every time it's used. He hearkens to his word and makes it true in our lives according to anything and everything we believe for and speak. Well, then why is the modern day church in such a mess? Because we're not believing for anything. Now I'm, I'm speaking generally. I hope that's not you. It's certainly not me. But for the most part. The modern day church. Has the idea that we're down here on our own. God may or may not do something to help us. Whether he does or whether he doesn't. We have to assume or will conclude or accept. That he's teaching us something in the process. But folks Jesus didn't say any of that kind of stuff. Jesus said, whatever you call for or require in my name, I'll do it. We know what that looks like. That looks like Acts chapter 3. David said, I'll make my boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear thereof and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. God likes to pair people up. I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked unto him and were lightened and their faces were not ashamed. The poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encampeth around about them that fear him and delivereth them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. O fear ye the Lord, ye his saints, for there is no want to them that fear him. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they that seek the Lord shall not want any good thing. Come, you children, hearken unto me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is he that desireth life and loveth many days, that he may see good? Keep thy tongue from evil and thy lips from speaking guile. 
Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears are opened unto their cry. The face of the Lord is against them that do evil, to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry, and the Lord heareth, and delivereth them out of all their troubles. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and saveth such as be of contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keepeth all of his bones, not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and they that hate the righteous shall be desolate. The Lord redeemeth the soul of his servants, and none of them that trust in him shall be desolate. That's what David called making his boast in the Lord. He communicated to each and every one of us that God is good and he's only good and he's always good. He delivers you. He lifts you out of the trouble that you're in. He redeems your life from destruction. No wonder. Because David had confidence in God as to that being who he was and who he is. When you're sure of who God is, it's easy to boast in him. David knew who he was. So how are we supposed to be bold? We're supposed to be frank. We're supposed to be direct. We're supposed to be outspoken about what the Bible tells us about God before heaven, before man, and before hell. Let's pray for boldness. Father, in the name of Jesus, we ask just as the disciples asked, that you would grant unto us boldness to speak your word. The kind of boldness that comes from experience. The experience that they prayed in Acts chapter 4 was healing. Grant unto us that we may speak your word with boldness by stretching forth your hand to heal. And that signs and wonders may be done in the name of the Lord Jesus. Give us that kind of boldness, Father. We know in part who we are in Christ. We know what your word says about having been made righteous by your blood. We see from the scripture that we're just as righteous or have the same righteousness as you do because it's not determined or dictated by the actions of the flesh but rather by the choice, the determination, and the confession of the heart. So, Lord, we make our boast in you. We say that we are healed by the stripes of Jesus. We say that the word of God is your power in the earth. We say that the greater one, the great Holy Spirit, dwells within us and equips us for anything and everything that we need to do. We say just what you said, Lord, whatever we call for, require, or place a demand on in your name, you will do it. Lord, we're not just asking for boldness so that we can take hold of your promises for ourselves. We want that, and we know you want that for us. But we're asking for boldness that encourages other people. We're asking for the kind of boldness that causes people to come to you. We're talking about the kind of boldness that inspires people to believe and receive for themselves because they're convinced that we know you and they can too. Lord, we love you. We thank you for all that you've done for us. We thank you for boldness. We thank you for refillings of the Holy Ghost 
so that we can do your work in the earth. We thank you, Father, for the power in the name of Jesus that's been committed unto us. Power over the devil and over all of his works. We say, Lord, since you told us that you'd never leave us nor forsake us, we say that you are our helper. We will not fear what man will do unto us. Thank you, Father, for the greater one. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 You know, perhaps we should ask ourselves a question somewhere along the way here. What reason would we have not to be bold? We've got the eternal word of God. We've got the Bible that scripts out who God is and what he'll do for us. Because we're part of his family. Because he loves us. Why shouldn't we be bold? I believe we should. Don't you? Amen. Well, let's all stand. Let's lift our hands one more time and thank God for being so good to us. Father, we thank you for your love, for your mercy. We thank you that it is your will that we demonstrate and be examples of the life of God and the power of God through the sacrifice of Jesus. Send us people that we can help, Lord. We'll be bold to help them. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us. Have a great week.